in our second week of a new sermon series called Wither. And so what we're doing is you guys are familiar with the term wither. And it's not the W-H-I-T-H-E-R like wither art thou, but rather it is the wither like a plant withering due to lack of water or maybe a plant withering because it has gotten a disease. And what we're doing is we're looking at the passages of Scripture and we're seeing how we wither as human beings when we're either cut off from God or when there's sin in our lives that um, pollutes and causes us to fall apart, to disintegrate. Last week we talked about the story of the prodigal son, both the younger brother and the older brother, and we saw how their hearts were withering as they were separated from God. They wanted the things that he had to offer, but they didn't really want him, and as a result, they were both withering externally and internally. Today we're going to be looking at the story of the woman at the well and seeing how she is withering because of her brokenness as well. Before we jump into today's sermon, though, let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you so much um, for inviting us all into your presence, Father. I thank you that, um, that you're a God who comes out to us, that you're a God who reaches out to us even when we are in rebellion towards you, Father, you still are drawing us to yourself. And so, Father, even as Rob prayed this morning earlier, that uh, I pray that we that are here this morning, that we would have a life-changing encounter with you, the living God. I pray all these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. One of the things that we know is that our decisions always have consequences, right? Sometimes those consequences are good. Sometimes those consequences are bad. Sometimes those consequences are really, really bad, like when I eat at Bojangles occasionally. That happens sometimes. Few stories, modern-day stories, capture the consequences of our decisions more than a series that came out several years ago called Breaking Bad. I think we have a picture of it behind me here. If you remember, the series follows Walter White. He's played by Brian Cranston. He's an underpaid, overqualified, and depressed high school chemistry teacher who is struggling with a diagnosis of stage three lung cancer. And so what he does is he turns to a life of, of crime, and he partners with a former student named Jesse Pinkman, who's played by Aaron Paul, to produce and distribute crystal meth to secure his family's financial future before he inevitably dies. And all the while, he's navigating uh, sort of all of the dangers of a criminal underworld, if you guys have ever seen the story. Throughout the show, we see the chaos that ensues in White's world as he gets dragged down deeper into this world of crime and drugs. He's constantly on edge. He's always looking over his shoulder. He's always lying and hiding and pretending not only to those people who are threats to him, but even to those that he loves the most. Every episode is a stressful peek into his increasingly chaotic world. And it isn't just that his choices are creating chaos. We know that about sin. They're also leaving him increasingly isolated from the ones that he was seeking to take care of, his wife, his kids, his friends. And his choice is actually sabotaging his deep desire to protect and to provide for his family. Finally, the show does a great job of depicting White as he becomes inextricably wrapped up in and enslaved by his despicable life of crime. In the end, he's trapped and he cannot get out. It's a great, I mean, it's a terrible show and a great show at the same time. In fact, I believe that the the guy who created the show said that it's really based upon the book of Judges, interestingly enough. But again, those three things I talked about a minute ago, chaos, isolation and addiction, 
Those are always the end result of what the Bible terms or calls sin. The creator of Breaking Bad, Vince Gilligan, does a fantastic job of capturing and illuminating each of them in this five, the five, uh, uh, five seasons of this story. We see those very th- things working out in real life in John chapter 4 when we see the story of the woman at the well. Let's read, if you will, follow along with me. I'm going to begin in verses 1, and I'm going to go all the way through verse 26. Then I'm going to skip a little bit, and I'm going to do 39 through 42. It's a lot, but again, like last week, it's a story. And so I would just invite you to sit and listen to this story, a true story of the woman at the well, beginning in verse one. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? She is shocked. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. By the way, that was Jesus. But the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. She goes back then to the town, and she tells all of these people about who Jesus is. We'll get to that in just a bit. But then they come out. Look at verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him, that is Jesus, because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Really wonderful story. 
The question is, amongst all of those things, because there's really a lot there, what should we look at this morning? I want to draw your attention to several clues that we should see here in the story of the woman at the well. They're easily missed because the differences between our modern Western culture and the culture of ancient Near Eastern Judaism. The first clue of this woman's withering, remember that's the story or the theme of these sermons, but the first clue of this woman's withering, her withering humanity, is the time of day mentioned in the story. In verse 6, we're told that it was about the sixth hour when she showed up at Jacob's well to draw water. That means that it was about noon when the woman got there. The reason this is a clue is because no one drew water at noon. All of the scholars that you read on this agree on this point. Women would draw water early in the morning, and then they would draw water in the evening, and there were at least two reasons for that. First, Israel is a desert. If you guys have ever been to Israel before, I highly recommend it. Maybe we'll take a church trip one day, but uh, it's a desert, so noon would have been the beginning of the very hottest part of the day. The reason people drew water in the morning and in the evening, because that's when it was coolest. The other reason people drew water in the morning and then in the evening was because morning was when water was needed for the day's cooking and chores, and evening was when the water was needed for the evening's washing. So the question again is, why was she drawing water at noon? What was she there at that time of day for? Well, uh, one option was that she was an introvert and that she knew that no one would be there. That's one option. So those of you in the room who are introverts, you know what I'm talking about. In fact, this week I saw this introvert meme. I don't know if you can see it behind me, but it's a picture of a lady in bed with her cat, and she goes, yeah, I can't come out tonight. Super busy. Anyway, there are about 30 of, there are a bunch of those memes online. If you're an introvert, you might find them kind of funny. And if you're an extrovert, it might explain introverts to you a little bit more. More likely than that, I don't think that was the case. In a shame and honor culture, this woman was coming to the well in the middle of the day because she was a social outcast in her own community. And not only was she coming to the well in the middle of the day, but she was coming alone. Either she was avoiding the other women of the town or they were avoiding her, maybe both. But let me pause here and let me make a point. And the first point is this, is the end result of sin is always chaos and isolation. The result of sin is always chaos and isolation. If you remember, uh, we talked about this last week, and we've talked about it a number of times, but sin is more than just breaking the rules. That's a very simple way of looking at sin. That's true, but it's much, much more than that. St. Augustine defined sin in a very helpful way. He said that sin is disordered love. He unpacked that idea throughout his writings, but we're going to look at one quote from on doctrine on Christian doctrine. Let me read this quote. He says this, but living, uh, but living a just and holy life requires one to be capable of an objective and impartial evaluation of things, to love things, that is to say, in the right order, so that you do not love what is not to be loved, or fail to love what is to be loved, or have a greater love for what should be loved less, or an equal love for things that should be loved less or more, or a lesser or greater love for things that should be loved equally. I don't know if you can understand what he's saying there, but he's saying that sin is disordered love. Throughout his writings, he develops this theme, and if you think about it deeply for a moment, it does make certain sense. Careers are good, but if you love your career more than your family, it's very, very likely that your marriage could end in trouble, maybe even divorce, and you might even end up estranged from your children. The result will be relational chaos and isolation. If you love people more than you love God, then you'll lie or you'll deceive or you'll behave unethically in an attempt to please 
or benefit other people, even when it's wrong. In the long run, people will know that you're not trustworthy. They'll know that you lack integrity. And again, chaos and isolation are the ultimate results of those sins. We see this dynamic working out in the story of the woman at the well, but we also see it in our day-to-day lives. We sort of know these stories playing out as we look at other people usually. We see them less in ourselves. My Uncle Jerry, who I've used a number of times in sermon illustrations, I loved him a lot. He was a great guy in a lot of ways, but he had his fair share of affairs over the years. He was married and divorced three times, and he definitely put work above all else. In fact, he made no bones about that whatsoever. But as a result, when he passed away of lung cancer now probably 17 or 18 years ago, he died alone, and not one of his three children nor one of his three ex-wives came to his funeral. His sin created chaos, and it created isolation. We see both of those here also in the story of the woman at the well. So let's go back to that story. Jesus is making his way from greater Jerusalem, that's kind of in the southern region, to the region of Galilee, that's in the north, and he has to go through Samaria. And he stops at a well during the middle of the day. He's exhausted and he's thirsty. The woman arrives to draw water and Jesus engages her in conversation. And again, this act would have been shocking. It maybe isn't shocking to us, but it would have been shocking to the original audience of that day. First of all, good Jewish men didn't strike up conversations with women that they didn't know. That would have been considered socially unacceptable. And secondly, Jews didn't associate with Samaritans due to what they perceived to be racial and religious impurity. And so there are multiple reasons why Jesus even talking to the woman at the well would have been shocking. Those of you who know much about Jesus or know Jesus, you would know that uh, you you wouldn't be too surprised uh, that he wasn't too worried about transgressing, transgressing these cultural norms. He started off by asking her for water. That too would have been shocking both to the Jews and Samaritans. It was shocking to her. And then he offers her living water, and she responds. They go back and forth, and ultimately she accepts his offer of this thing that he calls living water. But almost certainly she misunderstands him in the same way that Nicodemus had misunderstood Jesus in John chapter 3. Jesus is talking about the water of eternal life. He's talking about spiritual thirst, but she thinks he's talking about physical water and physical thirst. At this point in the story, we discover the reason for her midday trip to the well and why she is alone. It comes to light that she's been married five times and the man she's currently living with isn't even a husband at all. She probably was the kind of person who the other ladies gossiped about, almost definitely. No doubt she knew who she was and no doubt she knew where she stood in the social hierarchy. Now the text admittedly, does not tell us why she's been married five times or why she's living with a man who isn't her husband, but it is safe to assume that she is far from guiltless. Tim Keller hypothesizes that the woman at the well may have idolized romance so much that she had to have it even though it cost her her integrity and even though it cost her her reputation. We see that story playing out every day in the lives of men and women that we know. So that's definitely a possibility. It's also possible that what she idolized was safety and security, so much so that she had to have it, again, despite the cost. In that culture, women weren't allowed to own property, so without a man, she would definitely have been vulnerable in any number of different levels, regardless of what her motivation was, however. Her strategy 
to make her life work apart from God was clearly causing her to wither. Let me pause here and make another point. The end result of sin is not only chaos, it's not only isolation, but it's also slavery. In the previous point, I said that sin is more than just breaking the rules, that's true. It's actually loving things in the wrong order, that's the Augustine point. But sin can also be defined as looking towards anything other than God for our safety, security, happiness, identity, and well-being. Let me say that one more time. Sin can also be defined as looking to anything other than God for our safety, security, happiness, identity, and well-being. You'll notice that's also the same definition for idolatry or for an idol. Over the years and throughout different cultures, idolatry would have manifested itself in any number of different ways. People would worship fertility gods because in ancient cultures, children equaled security and safety. People would worship weather gods because rain meant agricultural success and agricultural success meant financial gain. Again, that was security. And we are no different than those ancient people. We might just worship some different things. We create idols out of good things and then those good things actually enslave us. Listen to what Tim Keller has to say on this issue in his article, How to Talk About Sin in a Postmodern Age. He says this, One of the main ways to read the Bible is as the ages-long struggle between true faith and idolatry. In the beginning, human beings were made to worship and serve God and to rule over all created things in God's name. Paul understands humanity's original sin as an act of idolatry. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. That's Romans 1. Instead of living for God, we began to live for ourselves or for our work or for material goods. We reversed the original intended order. And when we began to worship and serve created things, paradoxically, the created things came to rule over us. Instead of being God's vice regents ruling over creation, creation now masters us. Here in the beginning of the Bible, we learn that idolatry means slavery. Verses 21 and 25, that's of Romans 1, tell us the two results of idolatry, deception. Their thinking became futile and their hearts were darkened. And then uh, slavery, they worshiped and served, created things. Verse 25, whatever we worship, we will serve. For worship and service are always inextricably bound together. We are covenantal beings. That means much more than probably most of us think it does. We enter into covenant service with whatever most captures our imagination and our heart. It ensnares us. You hear what he's saying there? Basically, what he's saying there is that sin ends up in slavery, that loving the wrong things in the wrong order ends up in slavery. If Paul and Keller's description of sin sounds somewhat like addiction, that's actually because it is. Our idols ultimately demand full obedience. If pleasure is your ultimate good, then you'll choose it over and over and over again, even when it disintegrates you, even when it causes you to wither. Diabetes, heart disease, obesity, liver damage will likely be the result. If power is your ultimate good, then you'll position yourself, you'll demand, you'll control until you're finally alone. It will cause you to wither. If sex and romance are where you find life's ultimate meaning, then you may very well end up drawing water alone from a well in the middle of the desert. Inevitably, you will wither. Let me pause here for just a moment and ask you where you see addictive patterns in your life. 
for some of you, it could be something as overt as porn. It could be alcohol. It could be something as simple as binge-watching Netflix. But it's more likely for those of us in this room that it's actually something else, that it's something far more subtle. Remember, we can take any good thing and we can make it into an ultimate thing. It could be that family is even more important to you than God is. But in the end, even family, if it is an idol, will enslave and destroy you. You'll have to have it. You'll do anything to have it. And you'll actually sabotage that very deep desire of loving your family and having a family. Your desperation will actually drive your children away. Rather than coming to them, offering them strength, you'll be showing up in desperation and in fear, and they will know it. It will drive them away. If it's your career, you'll become a workaholic. If it's your reputation, then your entire life will be built, built around image management. You won't know who you are, and you won't be able to turn it off. It's exhausting. Whatever your idol is, eventually it will enslave you, and when it enslaves you, you will begin to wither. Now, we've already read the story, so you know how it ends. The woman at the well leaves the encounter a changed woman. She goes back to town, and she tells everyone about Jesus. The people from the town then come out, and Jesus spends two more days with them. Let me read verses 40 through 42 again. So when the Samaritans came to him, and they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. It's a really great story. It's got an amazing ending. But the question is, what do I do with this story? And one answer is, avoid sin, since the inevitable outcome of sin is chaos, isolation, and addiction. That is actually an answer to this issue. But that is far, far easier said than done. Idols can't be rooted out. They'll simply, something else will grow in their place. They have to be replaced by something or someone who can actually give you all that your heart desires. When dealing with disordered loves, it's not as simple as tweaking them until you get the right order. You will love whatever or whoever is most beautiful to you. The answer to both of those dilemmas is to look at Jesus. What do we see when we look at him? Well, first of all, in the story, we see him engaging the woman at the well and treating her with dignity. Clearly, no one in this uh, town treated this woman with dignity. Not her previous five husbands, surely not the man that she was living with. If anything, he was taking advantage of, of her vulnerability. The women of the town almost definitely weren't treating her with dignity. I'm not sure if she has children. The text doesn't tell us, but it's unlikely that they would have been treating her with respect either. But Jesus did. He initiated a conversation with her. He asked her for help. He entered into a theological debate with her. Jesus loved her enough to engage with her about her situation. He didn't avoid that, uh, that tricky topic. To some people, that feels insensitive, but Jesus loved and respected her enough to actually move towards her brokenness. That actually takes courage and love. He treated her as a human being created in the image of God. He treated her with honor, and he treated her with the dignity and respect that she deserved as one of God's children. We see Jesus doing that. What does that mean for us? What it means for us is if you look at Revelation 3, we see Jesus engaging a withering church and withering people when he says this, those whom I love, I reprove 
and discipline. We know that about good parents. Good parents that love their children's children engage with those children. They move towards their brokenness. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Like the story of the prodigal son and now the story of the woman at the well, Jesus comes to us because we matter to him. We matter to him because we're created in the image of his father. And Jesus invites us to a life of satisfaction, fulfillment, and even rest. That's the living water of eternal life. But it's also an invitation to a relationship with him and with his father. I want you to look at one more thing. The content of their theological discussion is worship. They talk about this mountain and that mountain. Will we worship here? Will we worship there? But if you remember two times, Jesus says to her, the hour is coming. The hour is coming. And he's actually giving her a hint that she won't notice then, but she will notice one day. Each time the phrase, the hour is coming, is used in John, Jesus is referring to the cross. Jesus is saying that true worship occurs not on this mountain and not on that mountain, but rather true worship will occur when you see me laying down my life for you.